Well, if this helps you at all, the, um, after the first service, had someone come up to me and say, that passage of Scripture challenges my faith in ways nothing else does. <clears throat> so, let's see what you're in store for. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you as individuals. Literally, Father, we marvel to think that you would come here. It's, it's incomprehensible that this planet filled with sin and sinners would at all be appealing to the degree that you would give up your son. But your love for us is so incredibly great. So we come before you as individuals who are longing to hear what your word has to say to us about how to be more Christ-like, but to comprehend what you accomplished. That can only be done through the work of your Holy Spirit moving through this room. For the hundreds of people, Father, who are hearing this message today, God, each one individually needs to be in a place where we can act boldly on your behalf, and we can't do that without the work of your Holy Spirit and an understanding of the truth of your word. So, Father, I ask that you just remove whatever blinders there are. Give us the ability, the comprehension, the wisdom, the capacity to look into these things written thousands of years ago that are as relevant today as the day they were written and give us application to our life. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Step back with me to January 2007. Very cold day. If you step back with me to the place where I'm going mentally, you'd be in Washington, D.C. January 12, 2007, the, the metro subway station, not subway where you get sandwiches, but subway where you take rides to work, okay? Walking through the turnstiles as you approach the doors, spinning in and out, you'd notice that you're part of thousands of other people at 7.45 in the morning rushing to work, some late, some on time. Individuals, as they entered the metro subway station, would notice one individual leaning against a wall, and at 7.45, bent down, opened up his violin case, flipped it open, and began playing, working the strings. Six pieces, mind you, from Bach. Looked very ordinary, baseball jacket, cap beginning to work the strings back and forth. No one paid attention. Thousands of people moving in and out, constantly back and forth. He was so gifted, yet no one paid attention, except for one girl and many children. As parents were moving through the turnstiles, the children would stop and stare at him, and the parents were making them shuffle along. One little boy broke away from his mom and went back and just mesmerized, staring at the man playing the violin. Little children did the same after that one. Some individuals, in a very much of a hurry, took coins out of their pocket, threw it in his violin case, but kept on walking. I want you to see this moment in time. We have it on video. It was captured in the subway station. This live image that you're about to see took place over 45 minutes 
but some of the editors that worked with it sped it up very quickly. So you're going to see it start out slow, and then it's going to move really quickly, but listen to the strings that are played. Watch with me on the screen. The one woman who noticed him, the words on the bottom of the screen, said, I saw you at the Library of Congress last night. This is one of those things that could only happen in Washington, D.C. Thanks. Two nights before, Joshua Bell sold out every seat in the Boston Theater. People paid $100 a seat just to hear him play what you just saw. The next night, he played at the Library of Congress, the night before this performance. Yet no one knew that the master had stepped onto the stage because he didn't look like the master. Playing six Bach concertos on a $3.4 million Stradivarius violin. I guarantee you the case he carries that violin in is worth more than most of us earn in a year. Phenomenal. He collected $32 that 45-minute period of time. (laughs) I don't know if that would buy him strings for that instrument. The children noticed the master. They tuned in immediately. And that one lone woman who stood and noticed, there's a master in our presence. In a very inconspicuous time, in a place no one expected, in a time in which the world didn't have time, the master stepped onto the stage. But because he didn't look like a master, much less like the king of kings, People didn't pay any attention because they didn't have calendars like we do today. There was no calendar that said, hey, it's 1 AD. Must be the year Jesus is going to be born. There's no one looking for December 25th. It didn't exist. All they had were the ancient prophecies. And then this one arrives. And in the mathematics of the moment, men and women could not put two and two together to understand that God's plan was that the consummation of the ages had been accomplished and God was about to become man. That's what we're going to look at this morning. This is absolutely phenomenal material. Not because I wrote it, but because God wrote Philippians 2, 5-11, which is what we're going to look at this morning. We're told that this period of time, this consummation of the ages could not have happened if before the foundation of the world, before you and I were created, back in time, God laid a plan that Jesus, the Son of God, would surrender everything in order to come to earth. In the last three weeks, we looked at the concept of surrender. We looked at surrender through the eyes of Joseph. What did it take for Joseph to give up everything to care for this child who wasn't his own and financially provide protection for this young one to carry him to another country. What did it take last week we looked at for the Magi, the wise men, to come all the way 800 miles from Persia to worship the king? They surrendered before him. Now we're going to look at the concept of surrender through the eyes of Jesus. And it is extraordinarily profound. It's what in theology we call the incarnation. Jesus became the ultimate example of surrender. Look with me on the screen at the definition for surrender. This comes from Webster's Dictionary, New American Dictionary. To yield to the power, control, or possession of another. 
Over the last three weeks, we've talked about the two forms of surrender. There's the surrender in which, perhaps like when you're in a battle and you realize the enemy forces are so overwhelming, you have to surrender. You don't have a choice. The other form of surrender is what you rec- in which you recognize it is the higher calling. You yield to someone else's power, someone else's plan. This is the yield we're talking about here. To yield to the power, control, possession, or another. Jesus, the Son of God, yielding and surrendering to the will of God. Giving up everything as, about you're, about to, as you're about to see. So look with me in Philippians. The book of Philippians, if you're new to church or you're not familiar with the Bible, is in the New Testament, and it's very far to the end. It's a, quite a short book. You'll also see the, the verses up on the screen. Philippians 2.5 is where we're going to start out at. It says this, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. The word that's used there is phroneo. Phroneo means to put your mind in order. Look at the definition. Phroneo, to exercise the mind, to be mentally disposed in a certain direction. To set the affection on, to be of the same. So Paul is instructing us, the church, this is written to the church, you individually, but also corporately to the whole church. Have your mind in shape. Get your mind in order with the same things that Jesus had his mind focused on. The entire church has to be in a position of surrender to what God wants to do. The best way I can put this in a framework for you is to take you back to a time when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. I don't know how familiar you are with first century Israel. People had really smelly feet, okay? They walked every place. There were no cars to jump on. Yes, some of them had horses if they were wealthy, but their feet were dirty and they constantly needed to wash them no matter where they went. There was a time when Jesus invited the disciples to sit down and they didn't know what was coming and he got out a towel and a basin and began to wash their feet. Now they repelled from that. No way, you're not going to do this to us. Now Peter was the most boisterous about it because slaves washed the master's feet. The master didn't wash the feet of the disciples. Jesus washed their feet and then he asked them a question. He said to them specifically, do you know what I have just done to you? He gave them a whole new framework of thinking. This passage is coming up. John 13, 12 is the response Jesus had to his own question. John 13, 12. First he said, do you know what I've done to you? And then he said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you, are, you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So this framework of surrender in which Jesus modeled humility was totally contrary to the way the world thought at that time. Is it totally contrary to the way the world thinks now? That you would set aside your own will in favor of something greater than yourself. Absolutely. We're in an age in which people would be shocked by the type of surrender Scripture talks about. As a matter of fact, this concept of surrender is so overwhelming that if I personally was to design the arrival of the King of Kings here on earth, there's no way that I would put him in a manger, let alone in a cave, to be born. I'd want him born in the finest family. 
We'd want him to have the finest education, to have servants waiting on him. But that was not God's plan. God's plan was that the highest of all would become the lowest of all, that he would submit, that he would surrender. So we're going to move through this now. Let's look at verse 6 and see the ways in which Jesus surrendered. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The first thing we note, this truth, he existed as God. This was not an accidental birth. Jesus existed as God. That's why we read this verse at Christmas time from Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So the first thing we learn is that Jesus existed before time. He was God in presence with God the Father and surrendering so by his very nature, he's eternally God. His existence is defined by this word, huparko. You see the definition on the screen, meaning a continuance of a previous state or existence, the essence of his nature continuing all the way through whether God in heaven or God on earth never changed, absolutely unalterable. William Barclay summed it up this way, that part of a person which in any circumstance remains the same. John got it. The Apostle John, when he wrote, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. John got it. He understood. The Word meaning Jesus He was in the beginning, and he's the one who came to earth. So Jesus eternally, immutably existed, and it's so important to get that in your mind. He is not like the prophet Muhammad, who was born of women here on earth. Jesus is God, who became God in the flesh, eternally existing. So this form of God, it says, he existed in the form of God is the word morphe. Look with me on the screen at the definition. An outward manifestation of an inner reality. We use the word morph in the English language. So morphe, the outward manifestation of an inner reality, is like this. A man, born as a child, starts out as a baby, a young man, a youth, moving into middle age, moving into being an old man. Still all humanity. Nothing changes. He's still a human, although the outward appearance changes Inside, he's still human. So this is the word. God, Jesus existed in the form of God, the morphe of God. And he changed when he came to earth. So before the incarnation, Jesus preexisted as God, equal with God the Father in every single way. Colossians says it this way. Paul wrote it. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So he surrendered who he was to become who he is as Jesus, the Son of God. He surrendered everything as you're about to see. We're going to see what he surrendered. This is profound, church this humiliation that he took upon himself. You'd have to say that if he existed as God in perfect form, and he gave that up, 
that requires then a descent. If he ascended from, if he ascended from here up, that means he must have started up and descended down. So he started out perfect, descended down, and we're going to look at that descent. There's eight particular steps in which God descended to earth. John MacArthur said it this way, Without forsaking or in any way diminishing his perfect deity or his absolute holiness in a way that is far beyond human comprehension, the Creator took on the form of the created. The infinite became finite. The sinless took sin upon himself. So here's the very heart of Christianity. The very heart of what we know to be truth. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. We find that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm going to show you eight steps. You can write them down in your Bible so you always know what did it look like for Jesus to step down from the throne to become part of us, to come here to earth. First step, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality is the word isos. You've gone to school, you've no doubt heard the word isos, isosceles triangle. The word isos comes from isosceles. It's, it's the root word of the word isosceles, and it literally means two equal parts. An isosceles triangle has two equal sides to it. So Jesus is the isos of God. That's what it says. He did not regard isos with God a thing to be grasped. Equal in every dimension. From his high position, his first step down was that he did not regard it something to be grasped. Even though he fully existed as God, he refused to hold on to his own rights. Jesus, though, never denied that he was God. Did you know that? Every time he was approached about it, if someone pointed to him point blank and asked him who he was, he would acknowledge it. As a matter of fact, that's why the Jews sought to kill him. Look with me on the screen, John 5.18. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself isos with God, equal with God. So this concept of the thing to be grasped is harpagomos. And it means literally holding on to something you already possess. It doesn't mean acquiring something. It means the thing that you already hold, the thing that you already are. So Jesus did not grasp onto who he already was. He let it go. And this is a critical distinction. At any time, Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels to remove him. That's what Scripture says. He could have called 12 legions. That's 60,000 angels. A legion meaning 5,000. He could have called that many. That's what Scripture tells us. But he chose not to because that was not part of God's plan. That was not part of redemption. So move with me into verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And this is surrender in the purest form. Step two, he emptied himself. So he's continuing the descent downward. Look with me on the screen at the word for empty. Kino'u, to make empty, to abase, neutralize, make of no effect, of no reputation, void. Every advantage he had 
as God, as the Son of God, he made it effective less. He set it aside. Now, his attributes were veiled in humanity. Certainly, we see evidences of it. He didn't give up his deity, even though he gave up some of his attributes. By that, I mean this. Jesus could still forgive sins, could he not? We see examples of that. Jesus could still heal, had miracle power. Jesus still knew the thoughts of men, but it was veiled in his humanity. He could not stop being God. It's impossible. God can't stop being God. Otherwise, his death on the cross would have had no effect. So we see that he emptied himself in five areas. If you have your bulletins, you'll see a little insert that I put in there this morning. It shows specifically the five areas that Jesus surrendered. You stuff that in the back of your Bible today and you will always have that with you to be able to show people what did it mean for God the Son to leave heaven and surrender his position to come to earth. Here's the first surrender. Temporarily, he gave up his heavenly glory. If you were here during the study of Revelation, you know that Jesus was part of the focus of worship of heaven, meaning the angels bowed down to him. The saints in heaven bow down to him and sing to him. But he set it all aside. Look with me on the screen, John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Past tense. The glory that he had, that he had set aside. He surrendered all of the worship of the saints, all of the worship of the angels, and what did he exchange it for? Disbelief, accusations, assaults upon him. The second surrender. Temporarily, his independent authority. Within the Trinity, within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is perfect harmony, agreement on everything. But Jesus, as a result of coming to earth, set aside his ability to make independent decisions. And so we see in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. An example would be on the night in which he was in the Garden of Gethsemane that he was betrayed. The arrest is about to take place. Jesus prays to God, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will. Your will be done. He set aside his own initiative, his own will. The next surrender he made was the surrender of his attributes. Veiled in humanity, just like we just talked about, he chose not to exercise the full limit. As a matter of fact, he knew where Nathaniel was before he saw Nathaniel. We understand that from John chapter 1. But when he talked about the last days and the second coming, he didn't know when it was going to occur. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 24, 36. On that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So Jesus set aside his attributes. Fourth surrender, his eternal riches. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For your sake he became poor, so that through you, through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Do you know that Jesus didn't own anything? You're about to see this when we describe a doulos bondservant. It says he became a bondservant absolutely void of any property. Number five, the fifth surrender, intimate face-to-face -face relationship with the Heavenly Father. 
Think about what God asked him to do. Look with me on the screen, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we have the moment on the cross. Jesus' arms are spread out. He's been there for six hours. And he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God cannot look upon sin. God the Father, righteous, holy in heaven. God the Son on earth, taking the sin of the world upon Him. And God had to turn His head away because He cannot look upon even His own Son. He is so holy. So the horror of this moment is realized when Jesus is on the cross and He screams out, No! He lost the face-to-face fellowship with the Father. So those are the five forms in which he emptied himself. Step three, the next step downward, he took on the form of a bondservant. I love Christmas for this reason. The incarnation, the concept around it is this, that Jesus became human. Do you get that? There's no halos around his head. Regardless of all the paintings that you see, there's no halo around the baby Jesus. He's a baby in a manger. No great glory, no angels bowing down. There's the smell of manure in the air. He's a baby in a manger, but he's king of kings and lord of lords. Absolutely phenomenal when they say he became a bondservant, a doulos. This is what a bondservant was. Literally, the bondservant who was put in employment to carry the burdens of their master. Did Jesus carry the burdens of all of us? Absolutely. The doulos owned no clothing. If the master commanded him to strip and take off his clothing, that's what the doulos had to do. They owned no property, no jewels, no boats, no donkeys. Jesus had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. The ultimate humiliation? He had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. So that's why Scripture calls him the bondservant. This mystery is so profound that Scripture tells us that the angels long to look into this, to be able to understand it. Look with me up on the screen. 1 Peter 1.12 Things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Angels are not omniscient. I don't know if you knew that. They don't know everything. They're not God. They're in a learning process. And they long to look into this. This is a mystery. One day, worshiping God, the Son, and the next day, He's in a manger? How is that possible? That the love of God is so great that He would descend from the highest of high to the lowest of low? Step four, being made in the likeness of men, coming from verse seven. It's talking here about the virgin birth. Homoi ma. That's the way the word is pronounced. Look at the definition for it. That which is made to be like something else in form, resemblance, made like unto the shape. Not a copy, not a clone, real humanity. Jesus needed to sleep. He was hungry. He felt pain. 
He mourned, as in crying. God the Son, taking on flesh, became tired and weak, absolutely staggering. And in one area, although he was without sin, he was tempted in every area just like you are. That's what Scripture tells us. Look with me on the screen, Hebrews 4.15. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Amazing. Verse 8. Being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here we see step number five. Being found in appearance as a man takes one more step down the rung. He appears as the image of humanity. As a matter of fact, when Scripture talks about Jesus' appearance, it says he was very unordinary, or very ordinary. Nothing appealing or attractive about him. Look with me up on the screen and you'll see John 6.42. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? His friends, people surrounding him, were amazed. This guy is human. How could he possibly be the Son of God? Think about this, church. He created the solar systems. Yet he's in a carpenter shop with Joseph making cabinets out of trees that he created. Absolutely incomprehensible. This one ascended from, descended from the highest of high to the lowest of low. Step six. He humbled himself, it says in verse 8. This is profound, moving from the form to the personal attitude. This is talking about during his arrest. They ripped his beard out of his face. They spit on him. They punched him. They shoved thorns into his skull. Can you imagine a greater humiliation than to be stripped naked in public? And after doing all these things to him, they still weren't done. They're about to hang him on the cross. So step seven is obedient to the point of death. The ultimate humiliation, he surrenders his life and he's obedient to the point of death. Paul wrote about this to the Romans. Look with me on the screen. Amazingly summed up. Romans 5.19, For as through one man, meaning Adam, disobedience as through one man's disobedience the many meaning the entire world were made sinners even so through the obedience of one meaning jesus the many will be made righteous the many is you those who name the name of jesus christ those who believe in his name he chose to die this way he chose death he didn't have to if it wasn't a choice, then he couldn't have possibly been obedient or disobedient. It would have been nullified. This was a choice. The Father did not force death on the cross. Look with me up on the screen. John ten eighteen. No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Had he not had a choice, he could not have been obedient scripture says he was obedient to the point of death so this was a choice for jesus to take that step and here's the last one step eight even death on a cross i know we're very familiar with the image church 
We've got it plastered on the sides of buildings. It's all over in jewelry in our society. But listen to what was conceived when a cross was invented. The Persians first developed it way prior to the first century A.D. Matter of fact, going way back into the B.C. period of time, you see that the crucifixion term was used by the Persians because they developed a spear-type shaped implement. This was a long rod on which they impaled people and hung them out over the streets. However, when the Romans discovered it, they thought, that's far too quick of a death. We'll still impale people, but we'll do it by piercing their hands and their feet and leaving them to suffocate on the cross. So the cross was perfected by the Romans. It was such a horrific death that it was against the law to crucify a Roman because asphyxiation took place over three days and it was considered so barbaric, it was reserved for only those who were enemies of the state and those who were the most hardened criminals. And yet Scripture said the son would die this way. Can you conceive in your mind the descent of the king of kings? He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he didn't hold on to it. And he continued the descent all the way down to the point of utter humiliation. To die on a cross, stripped naked, for one particular reason. To redeem you. To die for us. This passage, we're told by many historians as they look back at it, they understand that the first century church probably took this and put it to music and sang it as a hymn when they got together. Not for only the reason of what we just read, but for the reason of what we're about to see together. Look with me at verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You don't look convinced. Let's read it together, okay? Verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you notice the three groups of people in there? Those who are in heaven, the saints and the angels, already declare it. The next group, those who are on earth, us. Who's the third group? Under the earth, those who have rejected. There's a day coming when every single person is going to say, He's Lord, whether they want to or not. It says, every knee will bow. Those in heaven, those on earth, those of the on, under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for what reason? To the glory of God the Father. Absolutely inconceivable. It's okay to have a mystery like this. That's why that individual came to me after the first service and said, 
My faith is so challenged by this to think that our God would leave eternity to come to earth to redeem us, to leave the glories of heaven. That's why I believe, church, in eternity because God said His Word never returns void and that His Word will continue throughout eternity. We're going to hear this echoed from the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He could not not say it. This is an amazing example for us of surrender, the ultimate form. So have you ever come to the point where you've bowed the knee? Because if you haven't, this is a great time to do it, to recognize what He surrendered on your behalf so that you can surrender to Him. It's all about surrender. I hope when you see this next verse that you never read it the same again. Throughout the Christmas season, you see it occur on postcards and posters, throughout church fronts and billboard signs. This is the verse, John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Never read it the same again. The ultimate form of surrender. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for what you've revealed to us as your church over the course of the last several weeks to see the example of surrender through Joseph and to see it through these ancient wise men, but to see it today through what our King of Kings did. It's beyond description, Father, so we're content to call it a mystery. The great mystery of all time that the master would step onto the stage father we believe that there is a time and we understand when we will see the master in his proper clothing and he will be playing a symphony beyond anything we've ever imagined as we step into the gates of heaven father we look forward to that day and we understand that it will only happen for each of us who have named the name of jesus christ as our savior and king I ask, Father, as we go out this week that we would be bold to tell this story. We have the greatest story ever told. Thank you, Father, for this privilege. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Have an excellent week.